tonight we're going to be looking at how to face false teaching. And uh, as I was flipping through my news app on Monday night, it's an international app, and uh, when South Africa came up on the headlines, who was there but um, the pastor of doom? I don't know if any of you have ever... Do you know who I'm talking about tonight? The pastor of doom, right? And here was a man that was making renown for spraying insecticide as a cure for various illnesses, demons. And I had to smile when I opened God's Word to see what the text was for this week. Because, friends, we're going to be dealing with the reality tonight of false teaching. And there are some crazy things happening at this moment in the International Church of God. And some of you have experienced it firsthand. And so tonight, I want us to look at what does it mean, or how do we face, according to Timothy, this false teaching. And you must remember that this epistle has been written by Paul to this young leader to establish a plumb line for this church. And the very first thing that he tells Timothy to do is he has to put down false teaching. And uh, this false teaching was having a damaging effect upon the public life of the church. Church, this is the reality for you and me. What we believe comes out in what we do. And so false teaching serious because what it does is it warps the church and it warps the believer. And so the effect of false teaching comes out in chapter 2 where Timothy has to get right the prayer life of the church. The prayer life of the church is being affected. Secondly, the relationship between men and women, there's divisiveness, there's division. And that's what false teaching does. It sows seeds of disunity. And he has to get that right. Then he has to also establish church leadership that's going to guard the sheep. And so we looked at elders and deacons. And then last week we had the awesome text where the church is described as the pillar of truth that upholds the word of God to the world. And friends, tonight, you need to know that what you believe matters. What you are exposed to matters because you are called as a Christian into the public light to proclaim as a pillar this truth. But secondly, we saw last week that the truth is also the foundation on which we built. And so if that foundation is faulty, it is devastating for the building. It will not stand. And now Paul comes back to his theme in chapter 1. He comes back with the boxing gloves on. He says, Timothy, my boy, you have to be ready to withstand these false teachers. And Paul does not mince his words. And he comes and he says in verse 1, let's read together. Now the Spirit expressly says, notice that, explicitly, expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Tonight, I want us to look at four things that Paul equips us with to face false teaching. The first is that we need to be a people sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we need to expect false teaching, that it is around and it is around every corner. Thirdly, we need to be able to be assessors of character. When anybody comes and wants to share something about God's word or teach God's word, set themselves up as a teacher, we need to be able to assess their character. And fourthly, we need to be able to assess their content. Okay. I'll be dealing with the first three tonight. And the first point is this, is we need to be a people sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Don't you think it's interesting that in verse 1, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul says, by the Spirit, that these things would come. And tonight, church, the first point that we need to get right in our minds when we are faced with what is out there is this is that we cannot discern truth without the Holy Spirit. This is so important. And it was the men and women in the early church who were sensitive, obedient, and open to the Spirit who had the eyes to see what was going on around them. And Paul himself in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 to 30, he has a prophecy about this Ephesian church. He says, I know that after my departure, he's talking to the Ephesian elders, the elders. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The church is warned by the Spirit. The church is led into truth by the Spirit. And we must remember tonight... That without the Spirit, we cannot understand truth. We have no discernment. And the greatest witness of this was the Pharisees. Here you had men who knew their Old Testament backwards. They could recite the law. They had access to the very Word of God. But when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the anointed Messiah, was in front of them, before their very eyes, what did they do? They crucified Him. They couldn't see Paul himself, a Pharisee, was the man who was probably the most or had the most giant intellect that has ever been. If Paul had never gotten saved, you would have heard of Saul of Tarsus. He was a brilliant man. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I was a blasphemer. He hated Christ. His life was spent 
in resisting the church, throwing Christians into prison, voting yes at their execution. Everything inside of him was bent against Jesus until there was a day on the road to Damascus when Paul's eyes were opened to the glorious resurrection of Jesus. Friends, until the Holy Spirit comes and works in your life and gives you eyes to see Christ, you're blind. Blind. And the way you know you're a Christian is because there has been a moment in your life where suddenly, or over a period of time, the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, when that becomes real to you and you have the ability to see clearly that actually you need Him That is the start of salvation for the believer. And that is what repentance is. Repentance is having eyes to see. You see, before the Holy Spirit works in our lives, we can only see one way. It says in Scripture, the God of this world has blinded us. We have a veil over our eyes. And the work of the Spirit is this, is that He gives us eyes to see Jesus as He really is. And we have the opportunity to change our minds. Metanoia repents. We now see two options. And a believer is the one who has put their faith in the Son of God. And some of you tonight are living testimonies that for years, for years, Jesus was either just a swear word, Jesus was just a church service. Whenever a Christian would come to you and say, you need to put your faith in the Son of God. He loves you. Died on the cross for your sin. You go, please, man, don't be such a holy joke. Until the moment the Holy Spirit worked in your life, you couldn't see. And it is so significant, church, that when Jesus said, I'm going to leave you disciples, what did he say? He says, I need to go away. I need to leave you because I need to send you a helper. John chapter 14. Now, if it was me in that moment, I would be going, if Jesus was in the flesh with me, I wouldn't want to give him up. If he was sharing a bedroom with me and we are going to be mates and we get to walk, I would not want to give Jesus up in the flesh for anything. But Jesus said, it is better for you that I go away. Because when I go away, I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send you a helper. And He is called the Spirit of Truth. And in John chapter 14, verse 26, it says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said. And so in this first big thought, church, about being a people needing to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit is that we must realize in our lives that we have to cultivate a tenderness, an intimacy, and an openness to Him. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 to 31, it says, Do not grieve the Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve Him? Well, It's when we enter into all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Let it be put away from you. Paul says that in our lives, if we are not careful to respond to the Spirit's prompting, something happens in us. 
is we grieve him. And when the spirit is grieved, there is a withdrawal of clarity and understanding and things that are at our fingertips, the truth that we knew so clear one day, if we're not attentive to the Spirit's promptings and guidings over a period of time, they become a distant memory. And what happened to these false teachers with this? Remember, they were Ephesian elders. They were saved. They were born again. They had the Holy Spirit in their hearts. But they started with grieving the Spirit. That moved to resisting the Spirit. And then it went to quenching the Spirit. And what happens is if we live in a way that resists the work of the Spirit in our lives, we become blind. And so tonight, we need to know, church, our intimacy with the Spirit of God, our softness and our openness to Him, it is vital because without Him, we cannot see the truth. And one of the things that I find so humbling as a preparer of sermons, as a preacher, is this Marina, my wonderful wife, and I sometimes argue. <laughs> and uh, sometimes when we argue, I leave that argument and I'm going, I am right. Oh yes, I'm right. And I sit down and it's about uh, sometime in the week, let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I open up the scripture for that Sunday sermon, and I say, right, Lord, what do you want to say this Sunday? One hour goes by, Lord, I've got a sermon to preach, and it's at Sterling this week. That means if I don't get it, I get clobbered for three services, not just one at the ridge. I get off lightly. I just get off at nine o'clock. I preach the sermon and off I go if it's a bad one while well, there's next week man at Sterling it's tough if it goes badly at the eight you've got the ten and the six to face boy Jesus Jesus please Jesus I'm a I'm standing before your sheep you have to give me something friends the spirit's grieved he's saying Maddie you've got to make right with your wife no three hours four hours five hours friends the sweat starts to pour. The hands start to shake. The word's sitting there. The paper's empty. And you're just going, come on. That's what happens when the Spirit's grieved. Is the Bible becomes a closed book. We get foggy. And the mark of the Spirit is clarity. When Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Man, he didn't have his little sermon notes ready. He went out when the Spirit was poured out upon those 120 disciples. He started preaching, and what was clear for him was the Word of God. He unpacks Joel chapter 2. He tells those Israelites in Jerusalem, what you are seeing is the fulfillment of prophecy. He unpacks the Psalms, saying that the cross is indeed the work of God. Man, when the Spirit is moving, there is such clarity for the believer. We've got to be open to him. And secondly is this, if he not only leads us into all truth, but reminds us of it. I want to ask the question tonight. Does he have anything to remind you of in your life? And tonight, the reason why we give ourselves to Scripture and Paul says to Timothy over and over, my boy, you have to devote yourself to this book. You have to exhort 
publicly read scripture, immerse yourself in it that all may see your progress. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The reason why we grapple with the word of God is this. So that the spirit is something to work with in our lives. I wish it worked like the Matrix, guys. Remember, who's watched the Matrix here? Remember Trinity, there she is. She sees this helicopter, and man, it's a model. She doesn't know how to, how, to, how to fly, and she goes, head office, control room, just give me the download quick, and she goes, Ooh. the download comes. Suddenly, she's able to fly the helicopter just like that. Oh man, I wish our head office worked like that, but it doesn't. Friends, if we neglect the Word of God, the Spirit has got nothing to work with. And tonight, I want to say a daily devotion is not enough. It's a start, but it's not enough. It is our responsibility as believers to grapple with the whole counsel of God, the Scriptures. Those daily WhatsApps of those Scriptures, great moments of encouragement, it's not enough. Is we have to be a people that honor the Spirit by honoring the work of the Spirit. And this book is the work of the Spirit. And it's so important to recognize that because we see the crazy things we do. We see people drinking petrol. We see people eating grass. We see people eating rats and snakes. Because in their minds, they are desperate for the power of the Spirit apart from His Word. And so when a prophet comes, when a man of God says, comes, I've got the anointing. I've got the revelation. You need to spray this insecticide on you. The reason why they're open to it is this. Is they are desperate for the work of the Spirit. Without considering the work of His Word. And we are in a bit of a a dangerous place as an international church. The church with a big C. Because we have these two streams at the moment. We've got one side of the church wanting the life, the power of the Spirit, but neglecting the light, the Word of the Spirit. And we've got another side of the church that only wants the light of the Spirit, the Word, and is afraid of the life, the power of the Spirit. Friends, the mark of a ministry honored by the power of the Spirit is when the lights and the life come together. When the Word of God is being preached And the clarity is so powerful in that room that you know heaven is speaking, but he's speaking through the Spirit, and the Spirit is honoring the Word. Man, you know that is something from God. And you will never have a true work of the Spirit where you have a separation of this light and life. The two come together in perfect unison. And so we must be open to the life of the Spirit. And we must hunger for the light of the Spirit. That's how we live. The second point is we must expect false teaching. We must expect it. And Paul says, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And when I first read the pastor of doom, my heart just sank. But I was reminded by the scripture tonight that this is nothing new. And do you know that we have most of the New Testament because of these heresies, these doctrines of demons that were threatening the church? 
And uh, we might have different understandings of what Paul means by later times. How many of you have ever heard of the end times? Ever heard of that phrase? Yeah? Some say end times will happen when this happens. Friends, the end times started with the coming of Christ. The second the gospel hit the ground, we're in the final drama. We're in these later times. And the proof that it started with Jesus was in the first generation of Christians, it was the first, when the apostles were still living and breathing, they were fighting those Judaizers in Galatia. Jude was fighting those Gnostics in his epistle. Here we have Timothy fighting these, these Gnostics who were almost aesthetic, ascetic, or um, uh, the word is harsh to the flesh. Man, every second book virtually in Scripture in the New Testament is this putting down of heresy. And we are living in these last days. And these have always been around, but always been around. But I think the problem that we face today is how easily we are exposed to them. And I'll be honest, as a pastor, when I hear a new uh, preacher being recommended on YouTube or the internet or, or media, I'm amazed how much we are exposed to as Christians out there. And tonight, Paul says to us that these false teachings will have some success and that they will be influential and that they will be able to lead some, a number of people, away from the faith. And so what we need to know tonight is that just because a ministry is successful or international does not mean it's sound. Just because a whole mass of people are following a certain man or woman does not mean that their ministry is vetted. The third point is this tonight. It's not only must we cultivate a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, to His life and light, not only must we be on our guard, be ready for false teachers, but thirdly, we are to be a savvy people. We are to assess these teachers' characters. And Paul makes a summation of it in verse 2 that is damning. It is to the point. It is so direct. He says that, that these people have fallen away from the faith through, in verse 2, the insincerity, the hypocrisy, the NIV says, of liars whose consciences are seared. I want to ask you the question tonight. What on earth would drive a man or woman to take a public stand where they are willing to take Christ's sheep, his own flock, and tell them they must spray doom in order to have the demonic cast out? What leads a person to deny James's warning to teachers in the church that they will be judged more strictly, that in actual fact, their ministries will be weighed up and what they say will be held against them on the day of Christ? Friends, these men and women have no fear of God. 
They are standing up in the church, leading people astray, stealing pension monies, taking people's health, abusing it, sexually inviting them to favors and saying, if you have sex with me, you will be clean. If you give to my ministry, you will have a blessing. If you believe what I do, you will experience the fullness of life. These are men and women who are vagabonds. They are setting themselves up against the God of heaven. What on earth would possess a person to do that? And there are two things tonight that we need to be careful of. The first is this, is that these men and women were motivated by selfish ambition. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 is, They wanted to be somebody in the church. He said they desired to be teachers of the law. But he says here in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These people were being motivated by their own egos. Doesn't that sound familiar? Don't you remember the chief angel called Lucifer? Yeah, he is the most beautiful of all creation. Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan, was the most stunning pinnacle of God's creation. Not only that, he had the vision and experience of the glory of God. He led the worship. He was the one who stood before the God of heaven and marveled at his glorious purity and power. But what drove Satan to set himself up against God is he wanted the glory that God had. And James gives us a very clear warning in chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. It says, but if you have bitter jealousy, in other words, you are motivated by wanting to compete You see somebody else who has something more than you, and you want that recognition that they have. You want the applause that they are getting. If there's that jealousy, and that has been driven by selfish ambition, ah, look what happens. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual demonic. And what leads these men and women into Being deceived by demonic instruction is because they have not got a handle on their selfish ambition. They have grieved the Spirit, resisted Him, and seen the opportunity to promote themselves in the church by using the sheep for their own glory. And what it has led to is this. It says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And friends, tonight, these people cannot bear to lose their audience, but will do whatever they can to control them because they use their audience to feed something inside of them. And so you will notice a false teacher loves titles. He loves to be called Dr. Apostle, Evangelist, Prophet, Pastor Smith. He loves to have the glory of the suits and the helicopter. He loves to have the pyrotechnics and the cheering of the crowd. He's delusional. He's able to actually think that he's serving God, but in his state of absolute selfish ambition and grieving of the Spirit, he is or she is serving themselves. 
And the mark of a false teacher's ministry is it's all about them. Unless you follow their teaching, you won't have the blessing. Unless you follow their special anointing, unless you give to their ministry, they, the one thing they hate is for their audience to sit under another's ministry. They'll say, you've got to come under mine. I've got the anointing. I've got the special grace. I've got the fuller revelation. And friends, it is a mark of their own egos. May I just say as an aside tonight, as Christians, we have to watch selfish ambition. Ambition is neutral. You might be, by the grace of God, an ambitious person. That is a deposit in your life by the sheer nature, the sheer creation of you by God. But you've got to be aware, unless you learn to have it sanctified by the Spirit, you'll expose yourself. I'll expose myself. The second point, and this is my last point tonight, before we head into communion, under this big third heading of we are to assess a teacher's character. Not only were they motivated by selfish ambition, and we must look for it, the second is this, is they got into this terrible state by going against their consciences. It is interesting for me, reading Timothy in preparation of this sermon, how much Paul talks about a good conscience. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 to 7, it says, The aim, this is the aim of a healthy ministry, a godly ministry, of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, verse 6, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 to 20 says, Timothy, I entrust this charge to you, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Here it is, verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And tonight, church, the warning of Timothy is this, is we are not to ever go against our conscience. If we do, we land into big trouble. Now quickly, what is our conscience? Our conscience is the moral referee. It's the one who <whistles> blows the whistle, yeah, in our minds when we do something that we shouldn't have. It's the ref. And every single body, every single person here has a conscience at the level of nature. In other words, just because you're a human being, you've been given conscience. And unfortunately, our consciences are not perfect. Scripture says some of us, like myself, have weak consciences. In other words, it's, it's hyperactive. It just does this all day. Man, having two cookies when having coffee instead of one. My conscience is stricken. Printing too many pages at the photocopying machine. Conscience stricken. The person who has a hyperactive conscience like myself is always agonizing and analyzing and feeling so bad about everything that they've done. Announcements tonight. Stricken conscience. Dropping the water bottle. Oh, stricken conscience. Ah. Then there's some of us who conscience is a little bit dull. <laughs> And so that's why in a team context around a table, you can have a person who can respond to an idea saying, that's terrible, that's rubbish, that's pathetic. And the sensitive conscience guys are going, 
I can't believe he just said that or she just said that. The guy with the weak conscience doesn't even know what he or she's done. And you go out and you say after the meeting, so-and-so, Dave comes to me, Matt, you really, you missed it there, buddy. Um, and I'm going, if I've got a strong conscience, what are you talking about? Man, the person's fine. We have different consciences, sensitivities in our consciences. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, if you've born with a sensitive conscience, you're going to have it all the rest of your life. If you are one who has a, a, able to be less scrupulous about everything, consider it the grace of God. <laughs> However, I'm not finished with a strong conscience yet. And so the best way I can explain it tonight is this. It's like a rugby match, right? Who of you play rugby here? Youth, any of you play rugby? What? Put up your hand. Who plays rugby? Must use another analogy. <laughs> oh, I'm going to use it anyway because I prepped it. Okay, so now on the rugby field, when the whistle goes, what happens to the match? It stops. It stops. And when the whistle blows with our conscience, we've got to stop. And what these false teachers were doing is they were ignoring the whistle. When the whistle was going off, man, they just carried on playing. There was the ref saying, penalty, post, whatever it's going to be, and the, and the game is just playing. It's chaos. Friends, the first rule about conscience is this. Whether yours is weak or strong, when the whistle blows, you stop. Secondly, is we might not always agree with our conscience. Praise Jesus. My conscience is not always right. But I stop the game, and what do I do? Come and consult with the ref. Ref, I thought you were a bit harsh there. Penalty. Who do you appeal to? The third umpire, the TMO. Is when our consciences are stricken, pricked, the only way we are released from it is we don't ignore it, we don't carry on playing the match, is if we don't agree with that call, we appeal to our higher authority, the Hawkeye of tennis, the third umpire of cricket, the TMO of rugby, and that higher authority is the word of God. And we never, ever, ever push against our consciences. If we do that, something breaks in us, church. Something breaks in you when you deliberately, rightly or wrongly, if you agree with your conscience or not, ignore it. This is what these men were doing. If something happens in us, there is a breaking in us that can be fatal spiritually. We allow our consciences to be relieved either by agreeing with it and saying, yeah, that was a good call. I'll fix that. I own that. Or we appeal to the third umpire. We have our consciences shaped by the word of God. And for some of us, that means our consciences are upregulated by the Holy Spirit. Some of us, those who have consciences that are a bit dull, struggle to love people because they're not always sensitive to how the other person is responding to their behavior. And I speak 
to family members who struggle with a conscience that maybe is not as tender as mine. They're not so sensitive to when they're being uncaring. And the Holy Spirit, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, can help a person become sensitive to those around them. And praise God tonight with the help of the Spirit. God's Word can down-regulate consciences like mine. Is that we can come to a place of inner peace. And a good example tonight is maybe your relationship with alcohol. I'll share my story. I grew up in a very conservative Christian environment where there was a stigma attached to alcohol that uh, if you did it, somehow you're being disobedient. If you drank any alcohol, you're being disobedient to God. And for a long time, I could not pick up any kind of alcohol with a clear conscience. And then I started to seriously be challenged about what my view is of alcohol. And that actually in Scripture, in a sober amount, excuse the pun, a reasonable amount, it can be enjoyed. But it took me a while. I had the scriptures, but my conscience had to catch up with the word of God. And I want to say tonight, if you don't have any clear conscience about picking up an alcoholic drink, don't do it until your conscience is clear. Even if you know, man, these people have freedom, you can see other people like Dave who are wine connoisseurs. You can enjoy healthy amounts of alcohol. There we go, Dave, I'm exposing you. Um, You can enjoy great amounts of Healthy amounts of alcohol, not great amounts. Even if I can observe that. Even if I can observe that. And even in my mind, I know that's permissible. If my conscience is not ready, I don't do it. Now, praise God. The third umpire is one in that, and I love a red wine. Merlot is my favorite. But the rule is, we don't push against it. Because what happens is this. Is if we keep ignoring the whistle, youth, this is so important. I need you to listen to me tonight in this point. Young adults, parents, grandparents, If we keep ignoring the whistle, we eventually play on the field without a ref. And that's what happened to these false teachers. Is their consciences were seared. There was a permanent burnt scar on their ability to be open to the cautioning in their hearts. And I say this tonight... Because I know what it's like to play with fire. I know what it's like to enter down a path where the whistle is blowing and not to attend to it. And friends, it has always led to regret. And I am trusting that by the grace of God, some of us will be snatched from that fire tonight. And that by God's mercy, we will be caught before we learn to play life without a ref. But there's also some of us tonight, 
May I just say that word that Lynn Bruce shared, I felt this was what it was tonight. Some of us are running from our consciences. Your tackies are on. Jesus is calling you back. But the second thing is this. Is some of us tonight can't shake a guilty conscience. And if you like me, I have lived years in misery because my conscience has been a tyrant. And I just, for many, many years, as a believer, never had a peace in my heart that I was really right with God. Because you see, the problem with our consciences is this. It only analyzes performance. And so when you try and appease your conscience by performance is you're trying to always watch the game. If I use that rugby analogy, you're always trying to assess that pass. Was it a bit forward? I don't know. Was that kick? Did I give that penalty away? When you're always trying to assuage your conscience by performing better, you never are satisfied because we're not perfect. Some of us are coming to church out of a guilty conscience. Some of us are even trying to be better people out of a guilty conscience. The sum total of our Christian experience is trying to satisfy our consciences before God. If I'm honest tonight, for a long time that was my Christian walk. I didn't have a good conscience before God. And tonight, yes, if the Spirit is showing that there is something you have to put right. If you have done something against somebody else, taken something from someone, done any action where you know that the ref's call is right, you make it right with that person. But what I found is this. You can ask that person for forgiveness, but not really feel forgiven by God. And so the Christian life is just striving. It's just striving. It's just trying to feel good before God, feel worthy, trying to actually disprove what our guilty conscience keeps telling us, that we're not really welcome in the presence of God. It is a heavy burden to bear. And tonight, as we take communion, This cup is the symbol of the only thing that gives us a good conscience before God. You see, the way you recover from a guilty conscience is not by upping your performance. It's coming back to your position. That in the Christian life, you're not on the field because you're skillful or your contribution to the team you're not on the field because somehow you're earning it. You're on the field by the grace of God. Jesus Christ, the captain, has picked you, not because of how good you are, but because he's merciful. And we have the right to play because he's bought that right with his blood. And the moment of our recovery is the moment that we silence our conscience, not with our performance, but with our position. That we are on the field by the blood of Jesus. And Hebrews tells us, this picture of blood sacrifice in the Old Testament 
talks about the bloods of, bo- of goats and bulls. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, 14. And the sprinkling of defiled persons. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, if under that old covenant animal sacrifice could give a clear conscience to those Jewish people, it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, that, that's it, without blemish, his performance is perfect. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And the only way you assuage a guilty conscience before God is with the sprinkling of His blood. Tonight, church, the way is open. You might have never felt forgiven by God, truly. When you take this cup, the covenant in His blood, and you take this body that was the performance, this bread is Christ's performance, Everything he did in the flesh to satisfy the Father, you take it tonight. You eat it and you drink it. Cleansing your conscience. There is peace for you tonight. Acceptance. Grace. A good conscience before God. In his body and blood. So I want us to just take a moment, close our eyes. And just meditate tonight on that. You're on the field, not because of your performance, but because of your position in Christ. Isn't that awesome? And tonight, a good conscience is on offer to you. Oh, Jesus, tonight, I just pray. May this be a turning point for those struggling with the burden of a guilty conscience. May tonight, the bread and the cup be the love of Christ to us. And the acceptance of us before a good God. And I pray tonight that as we take this bread and cup, for those that have been running, they have their shoes on, running from a guilty conscience. Lord, tonight, make peace with you. To be determined to put right what it is in their life that they need to deal with and come back to a good conscience through the body and blood of Christ. I'm going to ask you tonight, if you're ready, won't you come up and serve yourself? Come and take hold of this cup and this bread with faith tonight. Go back and eat it when you're ready.
Lord, it's so good to be able just to sit tonight with these symbols, this evidence in our hands. You are enough for a clean conscience, acceptance, forgiveness, freedom. Lord, we look to no one else tonight for that freedom except in this body and blood of Christ. This is our witness. This is our third umpire. This is the one who stands guard over his people. Jesus, tonight we just marvel at you. We're so, so thankful for you, Jesus, for the way that you were broken, the way that you bled. That tonight we can be washed clean, be at peace. And I pray that, Lord, tonight the seed sown, the truth revealed, there's freedom in the blood of Jesus. I pray that you would keep your people in it. Help us not to swerve back into performance, but to come back to position. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to your spirit through a clear conscience, a life at peace with the living God. So God, I just pray, seal us, Lord, bless us, go before us. We love you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.